Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 259, Who is the One Creator? Part 2. Last time we talked about this question, who is the one creator? The Bible says there's one creator. You would think, well, that's just God, not the Son of God. Although a lot of people think it is God and the Son of God. And uh, so we're trying to clear up some confusion on the topic. Last time I just talked about all the clear passages In the Old Testament, there's one creator, it's God the Father, and the New Testament in clear passages when it talks about creation seems to just assume that the one creator is the Father. So it looks like the doctrine of creation is unchanged between New and Old Testament. This time I'm going to quickly, maybe foolishly, try to tackle all the main passages in the New Testament, which people have read as saying that actually there's two creators, the Father and the Son, or maybe there's really three but let's stick with two for the time being. And these are all difficult passages, and both Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian Christians have disagreed about how to interpret these, but I'm going to take a crack of them, keeping in mind those general facts. So for some people, the confusion gets started right in Genesis 1. Last time we looked at the, you know, the first verse of the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. But later in the chapter, it gets down to the creation of men and women, the human race, And it says, God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Wait, what's going on? Who's he talking to? Who's this us? And some Trinitarians leap up and say, aha, it's the Father talking to the Son and the Spirit or something like that. Okay, but the author of Genesis no way has that in mind. That would be an anachronism. That's like thinking that uh, Abraham Lincoln said something about the internet. He just didn't. It never entered his head. Okay, so what's really going on? There have been different suggestions here, but I think nowadays the best interpreters think that it's assumed that God has a council. Just like an emperor or a king has attendance, uh, many Old Testament texts assume that there's a divine council, what we would normally call angels. And that's who he's talking to. But notice what it says right after this, let us make, and according to our likeness, it says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Notice that the word created, that verb is in a singular form. That's because God alone did it. He seems to announce his intention. Why would he say, make humans in our image, according to our likeness? Well, in Old Testament lingo, God is the greatest among the Elohim. And the divine council, what we would normally call angels, those can be called Elohim as well. Psalm 8 says that humans are made a little lower than the angels. And so we are like God, and we are like angels somewhat. There's a resemblance in some ways between them and him as well. Reading this in its ancient context, it looks like God is talking to his accompanying divine counsel there. And the very most you could say is that's supposed to be some kind of hint of the Trinity. I mean, it doesn't teach it, it doesn't presuppose it. In fact, it's easy to read for a non-Trinitarian. Now, the big passage that everybody goes to If you say, well, I don't think Jesus created, I think God created. They say, well, haven't you read John 1? 
Okay, so let's read John 1. We'll read most of the chapter, and this is how it famously starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. Now, when some people see this first verse, they want to read it like this. In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was the Father. That's not right. Right? We know the word God, unless there's something interesting going on. You know, 99% of the time, the word God refers to the Father in the New Testament. And when they are looking at this passage with this theory that there had to be a direct and an indirect creator in mind, and that the direct creator was the pre-human Jesus, they see that word, and they notice that there's a personal pronoun used there, him, and they're like, well, that's obviously the pre-human Jesus. Well, that's not obvious at all, and this is one reason why it's not obvious, because this is not what you're supposed to say as a Trinitarian, that the Son was the Father. Sometimes they'll say, okay, but it could be translated as the Son was divine. Right, but what's divine is a God. How many gods are being mentioned here in the first verse? I think there's only one being mentioned. I don't think there's a first God and a second God. I think the God which the Word is, is the Father. But let's continue with the rest of the passage and see what sense can be made of it. But before we do that, another thing people seize on is the word with. We'll talk about that in a minute. Look, this word of God is not something that's introduced for the first time in John 1. This is talked about several places in the Old Testament. In one place, Psalm 33, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. Let all the earth fear the Lord, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Right, so in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. God says this and that, and that's the way that he creates. So they start talking about God's word being that by which God created. Another famous passage, and this gets developed a lot before the New Testament, as I'll show you, is Proverbs 8. And this is one of the many long speeches by wisdom. God's wisdom is portrayed as this lady in many places in Proverbs. And in chapter 8, she's going on about how wonderful she is. And she says, When he established the heavens, I, that's wisdom talking, was there. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Okay, so wisdom was with God in the beginning. Now, this doesn't say wisdom. It says word. But the interesting thing is that various authors sort of equate word and wisdom between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sir Anthony Buzzard has pointed out that some early English translations um, used it instead of he for the word. My own opinion about that is that because it's personification, we should just translate it as he. Just like when we're talking about wisdom in Proverbs 8, you would use the word she and not it. And there are other places where God's word is personified that I don't have on my slides, you know, where his work, uh, God's word does his bidding, it accomplishes his will, it runs swiftly, and so on. All right, so when you're personifying, you just switch to personal pronouns, but generally we understand what you're doing. But let's keep reading. The passage continues, What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? And I think that's still God's word that it's talking about. Then there's this interlude about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He, I think this is still talking about God's word. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. Who would be the people of God's word if this is talking about pre-Christian times? It'd be Israel, right? The Jews. Okay, it continues, but to all who received him, God's word in my view, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Now, the main reason why people think that the word has to be the pre-human Jesus, I think, is this verse right here. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. People almost get kind of furious about this. They're like, can't you read? It says the word became flesh. Well, yes, thank you for asking. I can read. The reason I think that they think this is obvious is because they think this must involve something like a ghost getting a body, right? If you got this immaterial spirit just flowing around free and easy, and then somehow there's this spare body and now the spirit is embodied, that's what they think is going on here, right? So becoming flesh, that's a way of saying becoming a man. And so they think that there was this eternal divine spirit, the word, this divine person, uh, and then it becomes man. What? How does that work? Well, I'm not going to open that can of worms today. The official answer is uh, he enters into a hypostatic union with a complete human nature, rational soul, and body. But that's not what John is thinking, I would say. The reason they think that it's got to be you know, the transition of a person from being disembodied to being embodied is because they're assuming this direct and indirect creator idea. They think Paul teaches that. And so they're, you know, when this says God created through his word, they're thinking, well, okay, this word is another being. It's another person. The problem with this is in the first century when this book is written, there is no category of divine person who's not all there is to God. They believed in God. They believed in men and women, human beings. They believed in angels, good and bad. And this word wouldn't go into any of those categories. Right? They don't have this concept of a person within the divine nature. That's not a first century idea. So that's a problem with this reading. Okay, but this isn't, I think, what John is assuming, that there has to be a direct and an indirect creator. What's so interesting, I'm going to show you some, but not all of the relevant passages, is in between Old Testament and New Testament, and these are the books that are in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. They call them the Deuterocanonical books. They were written, generally speaking, closer to the time of Jesus and written in Greek instead of Hebrew. In these books, they keep returning to that theme of wisdom who's with God at creation, and she keeps showing up again, and sometimes she comes down to earth and so on. 
Look at this. After talking about wisdom creating, again, this isn't in the Protestant Bible. It's in a book called Baruch. It says, afterwards, she appeared, that's God's wisdom, appeared on earth and lived with humankind. Oh, hmm, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? She is the book of the commandments of God, the law that endures forever. Now, this isn't some goddess or some weird angel or anything like that. It's God's wisdom being personified, just like Proverbs 8. Because God is so gracious, he sends her down to earth, and she becomes embooked, or maybe enscrolled. She dwells with Israel in the form of this revealed word of God to them. You could say it's a non-literal incarnation, right? There's no disembodied spirit here that becomes a human being. It's not literal. It's, it's not like somehow God's wisdom could literally turn into a scroll. I mean, that's just nonsense, right? It's metaphorical. She's coming to them uh, as that book. That's just to say that God revealed his wisdom, his ways, his nature to them through those writings. Here's another one of those deuterocanonical books, and there are many parallels in this passage between this chapter and John 1. I'm not even showing you all of them just for sake of time. So again, it's wisdom bragging about herself like she does in Proverbs about how important, valuable she is, and so on. It says, wisdom praises herself, I came forth from the mouth of the Most High. Among all these nations, I sought a resting place. In whose territory should I abide? And then a little bit further down, then my creator chose the place for my tent. He said, make your dwelling in Jacob and in Israel receive your inheritance. Okay, but notice a couple of things. This is God's wisdom talking and she says she came out of God's mouth. What does that make her? It makes her God's word. A lot of ancient philosophers kind of messed around with this idea and uh, it was it was a common idea back then that uh, one and the same thing is in your mind. They use the word word or logos for what's in your mind, and they use it also for the word that comes out of your mouth. It's like what's in your mind is coming out of you. They call both of those a logos, the word. Same with God. So yeah, God's wisdom is the same thing as God's word. And there's other sources that make this association or this equation too. This is just one of them. And notice that she comes down and dwells with Israel. The creator chooses a place for her tent. Many commenters have noticed that the Greek word in John 1, it says the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word could be translated in some context as tabernacled. It means lived among us, but literally it's like pitch your tent among us. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, so John, when he's writing this in the first century, he doesn't have in the background this idea that there are multiple persons in God and that there has to be a direct and an indirect creator. But what he does have in mind is Proverbs 8 and later traditions of kind of building on Proverbs 8 in different ways and talking about God's word. So, right, the transition isn't that you've got this eternal, divine, immaterial spirit. Well, for, again, notice John... People assume this constantly, but John 1, it doesn't say two things that people want it to say. It doesn't say the Word is Jesus. That's just an assumption people bring to the text that the Word is the pre-human Jesus. It doesn't even say that the Word is eternal. It just says, at the beginning, the Word was with God. 
There were early speculators that had a pre-existent uh, Jesus that didn't have an eternal Jesus, and that's why, because it doesn't say that the word always existed. Okay, so it's not a transition, in my view, between you know a disembodied spirit that becomes human or gets a body or something like that. It's rather uh, God spoke and made the cosmos, and then later on, God's word kind of fully came to the world in the person of Jesus, who's a man. He was born to Mary. He wasn't available for world creating. He wasn't around back then. That's John's assumption, I think. And there's another thing going on in the passage I don't have time to talk about fully, but there was a a theme in other Jewish writings in ancient times where God's word is trying to get to Israel and can't quite get there, or God's word comes to Israel and because they're so disobedient, it like goes back up to heaven. And in John, God's word is reaching out, but doesn't quite fully get in until Jesus. That's uh, the kind of struggle that's portrayed uh, as, as the chapter goes along. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 assume that Jesus somehow helped in creation? I want to move on to another famous text. This one's really brief, and this is in the context of Paul discussing can Christians eat food that's been dedicated by the, uh, the seller, presumably, or the person that slaughtered it. Can they eat food that's been dedicated to idols? And I won't go into his answer, but as he's warming up for his answer, he says, oh yeah, these pagans believe in many gods and many lords. Presumably a lord is like a second-tier deity there. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, the New Revised Standard says, but that word's not in the Greek, uh, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Okay, what, is this about creation? Is he just popping off into the topic of the creation of the world here, right in the middle of a discussion about food sacrifice to idols? Well, maybe, but notice that there is nothing in the context that introduces creation or refers to Genesis 1. And uh, you don't want to just assume that the phrase all things means, you know, the heavens, the earth, and the seas, or all of creation, or something like that. The phrase all things is in Greek, tapanta, literally like the all. And what's so interesting about it is it's a very flexible phrase and can mean a whole bunch of different things. And you always just have to look at the context to see what's being talked about. Now, the words like all and none are always very context dependent. Suppose we have a visitor in church and no one here knows that this guy. And, and you say, no one knows that man. And then someone says, what do you mean no one knows him? I bet his mother knows him and his brothers and sisters well, no, what the person said, what they meant when they said no one knows him was that no one here present in this congregation knows him, right? Not no one absolutely. 
One time I was at the dollar store and I went up to the cashier and I said, I have a question about pricing, sir. And he said, good news, everything's a dollar. Everything? He said, yes, everything. I noticed he had his keys on the counter. So I took his keys and I, I uh, left him a dollar and I took his car and went home. He said everything. Come on. Doesn't he know English? <laughs> right. I, I would be a fool or a thief or both if I did that, right? Because when he says everything's a dollar, he means all the things for sale in this store. You can do a really interesting study just by looking up tapanta in the Greek with a computer program and see all the different kinds of things it can mean. And we can't do all of that here. But I want to look at a couple of uses that Paul has in First and Second Corinthians. So in chapter 12, he's talking about gifts of the Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. Okay, so he uses this phrase tapanta here, and it's translated properly as all of them. All what? All of what are we referring to here? Hmm? Yeah, or activities, which are the exercise of gifts. Yeah, something like that. Right, so when you say the all, it's, it's always heavily context-dependent. Here's another context in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this, tapanta, the all, is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, what's the all this here? All what? It's not all the items for sale in the dollar store. It's not all the people in this congregation. You just have to get it from the context, and it's not always 100% clear. Everything has become new. So what would the all this refer to? Something like the things that have been renewed in the new creation, so since you've been born again, the things that have been changed with respect to you, something like blessings of the new covenant, you could say, maybe, something like that. But, you know, all this is not, you know, the heavens and the earth and everything in them. It's not that kind of idea, right? Okay, so what is Paul doing back in chapter 8 with this quick little aside? Well, let me make one more point about this. Suppose that Paul is just zinging off to the topic of creation here for no apparent reason. If he is, let me go back to the uh, New Revised Standard Translation. If that's what he's doing, then what he's saying is that the world, the cosmos, it comes from God through Jesus. Now, the idea of creation in a monotheistic religion is the buck stops with God. If you want to know where things came from, well, anyway, the buck stops with God. He's the farthest back source of it. Did anybody else help? Well, uh, maybe, maybe not. It depends on the religion. But anyway, God is the furthest back source. That's what it is to be the creator in a monotheistic religion. Have you ever seen the uh, silly um, sci-fi movie or novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? There's this cockamamie story about how aliens made the world, okay? And they meet this one guy, his name is Slarty Bartfast, and he says he's really proud of having designed the fjords of Norway. <laughs> right, but he's not a creator in the sense of 
the monotheistic God, right? Because he came from somewhere himself. And if you want to trace back where all things came from, you wouldn't start, you wouldn't start with this designer alien dude. Okay. So at most, this makes Jesus the second farthest back source. It doesn't make him the farthest back source. He would only be a creator in a secondary sense. But can you read this as not having to do with the creation? He's talking about some other tapanta, some other all things. I think you can. Uh, and the idea is similar to the passage we just looked at, where he, where he uses tapanta to mean something like the benefits of uh, new creation. So you could read it like this. This is just Dale's paraphrase. This is not a strict translation. Uh, yet for us, Christians, he means, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all new covenant blessings, and for whom we are, for whom we live, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all new covenant blessings, and through whom we live. So you can take it like that. Is that arbitrary? You know, some people get furious, like, oh, you've got your crazy own theology, you're trying to escape the obvious meaning. Well, look, unless you approach that passage with the idea that there has to be a a direct and an indirect creator, if you don't approach the passage with that assumption, then it isn't obvious that creation is being talked about there. And it is obvious that tapanta can be used to refer to many collections of things. And the reading I just gave, I think, makes as much sense in the context of Paul's actual thought as this idea that he's uh, bringing up creation there. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Colossians 1 say that Jesus created the cosmos? Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. A lot of people would say this is a harder passage. I'm not sure how hard it is. We just saw that Paul uses this phrase, new creation. Now, when he's talking about new creation, he's not talking about what happened back in Genesis 1. He's talking about what God has done through Jesus. It could be in the life of an individual, or it could be just on a more collective level. And so, when we see creation talk, something that sounds like creation talk, we have to wonder, especially if it's Paul, does he have in mind the Genesis creation or does he have in mind new creation? A lot of interpreters, I'll be honest, they think they see both creations being discussed in the passage we're about to read. They think Jesus is being credited with the original creation and also that Paul is saying that God did the new creation through him. I don't see the Genesis creation there. It seems to me you can just read it as having to do with new creation. And the reason I say that is because, as you'll see, the entire context is the current age. After Jesus has accomplished his work, after he's died, been raised, and been exalted, and put in charge of the church, and so on, the context before, during, and after the passage we're looking at where it's using creation language, it's all like new covenant context. So let's see what it says. 
In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. A little bit further down, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're talking about this age. We have been rescued. Paul is grateful that the believers in Colossae have been uh, transferred into the kingdom of God. They have received redemption and so on. He, I would say he's talking about the risen and exalted Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Hmm, this is getting interesting. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, so notice at the end of the passage, just like at the beginning, the whole context is this age, it's the era of new creation. So let me go back and make some more specific comments about it. The part where it really starts to get exciting is where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? So if you're the image of something, you're not that thing, you're, so to speak, a copy of it. My image in the mirror isn't me, but it is like me. It looks like me, right? And this is similar to the point being made by Jesus in the fourth gospel. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? And, and just the idea that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. If you want to know what God's heart is like, look at Jesus. Why does it call him the firstborn of all creation? The firstborn in many ancient laws, including the law of Moses, would get a bigger share of the inheritance, the firstborn son specifically. And so I think he's being called firstborn here. And the, the firstborn son would also have other rights in many ancient cultures, not just the greatest share of inheritance. But I think he's talking about Jesus post-exaltation, and he's the firstborn in the sense that he is you know, the greatest among those in creation. For in him, all things in heaven and earth were created. Now, that just seems like, well, that's just got to be creation, right? It says what it says. It says created. But notice something here that's interesting. Again, there's an occurrence of tapanta, the all, all things, the translation says. And we always have to ask, according to the context, all the what. And another thing you have to keep in mind is that Paul uses tapanta translated all things, he uses it sometimes to refer to collections of people or personal beings. Just because the translation says all things doesn't mean that it has to be some kind of impersonal objects or something like that. It could be a mix of personal and impersonal things, or it could be all personal things. Notice, though, he immediately goes on after saying all things in heaven and on earth were created. He goes on to tell you what those are. Things visible and invisible, 
Okay, so there's things from this, the observable realm and things presumably from the spiritual realm. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. So if this is creation, again, he would only be the second to last creator, not the ultimate source. But is it creation? I don't think so for a couple of reasons. Normally, the way that you would describe creation is you would say that God's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Or maybe the heavens, the earth, and the sea, something like that. And it doesn't say this. It says all the things in heaven and on earth. What sorts of things? Mountains? Trees? Oceans? Lakes? No. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers. Those seem to be referring, in the case of the invisible, to kinds of angels. And uh, interpreters are not clear you know, are they strictly in order, like from greater to lesser, or are these kind of words for the same thing, or what's going on? The visible things, visible thrones, visible dominions would presumably be some kind of human rulers. So if this is read as new creation, this is basically the idea that Jesus, in his work of death, resurrection, exaltation, he has reordered the powers the invisible powers of angels and the visible powers, right? Because his peeps are going to be in charge of the world someday. The saints are going to rule and reign with Christ. They could have in mind uh, people like apostles or something like that as rulers as well. So it's plausible to take this to be about new creation and not about the Genesis creation. I mean, look how the passage immediately continues. He himself is before all things. Like this is a positional thing. What's the all things here? Presumably the all, all the things just talked about. So out of all the rulers, seen and unseen, God accepted, of course. Jesus is above all them. He's the head of the body, the church. He wasn't the head of the body, the church, at the time of the Genesis creation, but he is now. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, again, post-resurrection, so that he might come to have first place in everything. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about Hebrews 1? Does this text twice attribute the Genesis creation to Jesus? So one more difficult passage, and this is probably, for reasons I'll explain, the most difficult one. And even biblical Unitarians have sort of gone back and forth about how to translate one verse here, but also how to interpret a couple verses. Hebrews, for whatever reason, starts off very concerned to tell the recipients of the letter that Jesus is greater than any angel. Now, look, if Jesus is God, the creator, you don't need to go around saying something like that. Of course, the God, the creator, is greater than any angel. How could he not be? He presumably is the creator of the angels, too. Okay, but he's talking about Jesus and his uh, resurrected and exalted state, and 
Presumably, he doesn't exactly say this, but very likely the recipients of the letter were being tempted by angel worship. There was a lot of ancient speculation about realms of angels in between God and the world, and you know, people were always busting out this secret knowledge that would somehow give you a leg up in how you interact with the unseen realm. Uh, so there's a concern about not worshiping angels and realizing that Christ is much greater than any angel since his exaltation. So it starts off, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created, it says in Greek, the ages. These translators say the world. Well, I think they're committed to this theory of direct and indirect creator. But again, is it Genesis creation or the new creation? Ages make, you know, you can take that to be the, the new age initiated by Christ and what's going to come. Those would be the ages, presumably. But let's see how he continues. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things. All things, what things? All things by his powerful word. Are those things, you know, the things created in Genesis? Well, look at the context. It looks like it's new creation. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And now he runs through a bunch of contrasts between Jesus and the angels, and he quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages. I won't mention most of them, but he's just got this bullet point list of contrasts, okay? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be his father and he will be my son? And again, to which of the angels did God ever say, when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. All right, the answer is none. He never did say that to angels. So Jesus is much superior to angels. Here's another contrast. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's a translation dispute here. Some would say it should be translated, God is your throne forever. But even if this translation is right, it's Psalm 45. It's a wedding psalm. So initially, this was the king of Israel. Your throne, O God, is forever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This is just an example of using the word God for someone who's obviously not a god. And it continues, and this is the passage that gets everybody all riled up. But I just think it's in the list of bullet points, okay? He's still contrasting Jesus and the angels, okay? And I would insert, God also says to the Son, In the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing, like a cloak you will roll them up. And like clothing, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never end. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's continue with the passage, right? Context is everything in interpreting 
a passage. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels spirits in the divine service sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And let me just mention one thing that happens in the next chapter. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. The context, I think, is this and the next age. It's not Genesis in the whole passage, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now let me go back to verses 10 and 12 and explain why they get people so worked up. This is a quotation of Psalm 102. And if you look up Psalm 102 in the Hebrew text, where it says, Lord, that's the personal name of God. And so in its original context, Psalm 102 is about God founding the earth. The earth will perish, but he's never going to perish and so on. It's just about God. Now, what this writer is doing is he thinks that there is a double meaning here. And when he looked at it in the Greek, the way the Greek translation went, it sounds like God is talking to someone else here. And so he's interpreting it as having a fulfillment in Jesus. And that's why it's in his bullet point list of things that God says to Jesus. So when the writer looks at this, yes, originally it was about God, but he is saying that it has an application to Jesus. And this is not his way of hinting that Jesus is God. Okay, that's just a beginner's mistake in reading the New Testament. Think about it, Matthew when it says that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of this baby who'll be born, he'll be called Emmanuel, God is with us. That was originally about a baby in Isaiah's time. Jesus isn't that baby. The writer is saying it had a fulfillment back then, and it has a fulfillment now in the Messianic age. That's what's going on here. This passage meant one thing in original context, and he's saying here, as he reads it, God is talking to the Son. Right? It's in the list. He's still contrasting the Son and angels. So, yeah, I mean, look, is it a little strange? Yeah, but the beginning would presumably be the beginning of the Messianic era or the New Covenant era. You founded the earth, right? In other words, you, you accomplished new creation. You renewed all things, so to speak. They will perish. Well, there is still talk about the age to come in addition to the new age um, and past ages. So presumably it's just saying, well, things are still going to change again, but you, the son, are going to forever remain. So yeah, you can read this as about dealing with new creation it's not a roundabout way of saying that Jesus is God, right? Chapter 2 goes on to insist that Jesus was, was truly a human, not that he was God. And it goes on at great length about how he's a high priest, an intermediary between God and humans, and so on. Okay. So in conclusion, there is some traditional language that's arisen since about the 4th century that I think is just muddying the waters. It just confuses issues. It's purposely vague language. When Trinitarian commenters read the passages I just went through, they'll say, oh, clearly Jesus is involved in creation. Well, what does that mean? He's one of three, one of two? He's like second to last ultimate creator, or he's, the, he's like the ultimate source? Because the idea of creation in monotheistic religion is that ultimately it comes from God. 
And it's a weasel phrase to say that Jesus is involved in creation because is he the ultimate source or not? I don't like this involved in creation. It's purposely vague. Even worse is this. Jesus is on the creator side of the creature-creator distinction. What does that even mean? Does that mean he's the one creator or not? Yes, that's what it means. It's a weasel phrase. Let's just ask, is he the one creator? No, the Father, it looks like, is the one creator. The Son of God is different than God. This talk about sides is abstract and it's not helpful. So last time we started with this inconsistent triad, it's three claims that just by logic can't all be true. The Father is the only creator, Jesus is the only creator, and the Father and Jesus are two. And it looks like the way to go is to deny the second claim, that Jesus is the only creator. It looks like the Old Testament and New Testament are in agreement that it's God that created, and in the New Testament, God is referred to as the Father. And obviously, it's a New Testament doctrine that God and Jesus are two. They're God and the Son of God, right? There are differences between them. So just to summarize the overall case, again, I think a problem here is that people have their favorite texts that think they can show this astounding truth about Jesus that he created the world, and then they tend to ignore these more kind of general contextual factors The Old Testament is clear that God created and that he didn't have any help. He says in one passage that we looked at last time that I did it alone. And New Testament texts that mention creation, they just say God created, and that just means the Father in context. So they don't seem to have changed. There doesn't seem to be a doctrine of two or three creators in the New Testament. As I mentioned last time, there was this philosophical idea that God was too transcendent, too holy, too other that he couldn't create directly. And so he had to have this in-between being that was neither created nor uncreated. And this intermediate being could get his hands dirty and deal directly with the material world. That just comes from Platonism. There's no reason in the Bible, there's no reason at all to think that that's true. God's all-powerful. Don't you think an all-powerful being could interact directly with material creation? Like, why would he have that weird limit on his power that, so to speak, he couldn't get his hands dirty? So just to summarize the difficult text that we looked at today, Genesis 1, look, it just says God alone created. It uses singular verbs, and that seems pretty clear. And the let us make man in our image looks like it's a reference to the divine counsel. John 1, God created by his own word. The idea is similar to saying that he made all things by his wisdom. And then finally, you know, when the time was right, He most fully revealed his word, his wisdom to us in the man, Jesus. He's a man. He wasn't available for the job of creating. 1 Corinthians 8, our current spiritual windfall is from God and through the Lord Jesus. That's the way I suggested reading it. The mention of all things doesn't mean all the created things. It means like all the blessings that Christians enjoy. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, basically it's plausible to take those as having to do with new creation, that God renews the world through Jesus and uh, reorders the seen powers and the unseen powers. The two creator interpretations of all those passages, really, to get off the ground, they needed help from that speculation that God couldn't create directly. You see this directly in people like Justin Martyr uh, in the second half of the 100s. And um, right, there's just nothing... Nothing obvious about it.
What's weird is this idea that God couldn't create directly, it's kind of dropped off the scene. People aren't really Platonists anymore. There's some influence there, but you're just as likely to find that three creator scheme where they all are sort of doing it at the same time rather than the the intermediate creator and the ultimate creator scheme. So this speculation helped the interpretation of those passages to become dominant, and then they kind of forgot about that speculation, the mainstream. And so you can read commentaries now, and they're just like, oh yeah, this is super obvious. Jesus created the world. That's obviously what Paul thinks. I don't think it's obvious. And one more contextual factor to consider is this. Remember that the first three Gospels don't have anything that even sounds like Jesus creating. Now, if the Trinitarian interpreters are right, Paul is going around in the 50s and the early 60s saying that Jesus created the world. And then most scholars think that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written a little bit later than that. And they don't mention it at all. Well, that's weird. I mean, isn't that a pretty important thing on Jesus' resume to mention? So Paul taught it, and then they all forgot about it for several decades. Oh, and then John, maybe he's written late, maybe in the 90s, first century. And oh, John comes up with it again. Weird. The way that I've suggested reading these passages smooths it out. No, they're, they're Jews. They think God created. They think he made all things through his word. They think that word is in Jesus. Another way to say that is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Okay, so I don't think those interpretations are obvious, but if you look in your study Bible footnotes, they're going to say it is. This is simple. You can explain it to a five-year-old. And on the face of it, this is the idea of creation that you have in both Old and New Testament. And I think it's better to read the difficult text in a way that's consistent with this. Let's give credit where credit's due. All of this is the work of his hands. I don't think, according to the New Testament, it's the work of their hands. Thank you. This week's thinking music has been the track Burning the Microwaves by Spinmeister. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.